welcome. Very pleased to be joined all the way from Hong Kong today uh, with Hersha Chellaram and a little bit of background on Hersha. Hersha is a yoga educator and teacher trainer offering integral yoga and accessible yoga through Hersha Yoga School of Teacher Training. She specializes in empowerment and inclusion through yoga education. She is the founder of the Yama Foundation, a charity that makes yoga, art, and meditation accessible to Hong Kong's most vulnerable communities. Throughout her teaching career, Hersha has developed special trainings, programs, and presentations in Hong Kong, Gibraltar, India, London, New York, Portugal, and Spain. And she advocates for disability rights and diversity and inclusion in well-being spaces. Hersha made the list of the 20 yoga teachers of color to watch in 2020. And the 2014 Women of Hope Award as children's advocate presented by the Hong Kong Adventist Hospital Foundation. So thanks for taking this time to be here with us, Hersha. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Great. Um, so I'd like to start by just asking you this. Why do you do what you do? It's a very good question. It's the ultimate why. Part of me has always been drawn to the idea of service and obviously encouraged from the teachings of Sri Swami Satchidananda, Gurudev. And it has always been something that I've wanted to do is to give back. There is no, I believe that, you know, meaning of life doesn't happen to you. It's not something that you find. It's something that you have to create. And to create that sort of meaning, it, it always boils down to giving back or helping somebody. And it's not about how many people you help. It's just that notion of service. And it doesn't have to be in the world of yoga. It can be any field you choose. For example, I have a friend who is a hairstylist. And the way she gives back is once a month, she goes to the local charity that looks after homeless folk and she gives free haircuts. And I believe this is what makes life very rich is the notion of giving back and creating meaning in a way that makes sense for you as an individual. Mm -hmm. And so this is why I do what I do. <laughs> so is it, is it your kind of um, belief that we each get to decide, you know, how to create the meaning in our lives uh, in the ways that we want to? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, you know, our, the way we live our lives is we have desires we have passions, we have natural talents, and then we have areas that we are drawn to. And it sometimes takes a lifetime, and for the lucky few, it takes less than a whole lifetime to kind of figure out what that combination is for you, and then to pursue it and be patient in that pursuit of it. But you create your life you can direct your life in whatever direction you want it to go in. Again, not ignoring the life that you've been given, right? Your responsibilities mm -hmm. and everything. So 
it's up to you to make it work in a way that suits your capabilities, suits your personality, suits your responsibilities. But I believe everybody has it. I think the main thing is just to let go of how rich or famous you want to be, right? Because that's what holds a lot of people back. Oh, it's all or nothing. But if you can do it in the smallest of ways, then everything counts. Right. And if the focus on being rich and famous, and that's where you're putting your meaning, um, yeah, what would, <laughs> I think like, what would Swami Sachidananda say about that? Like if you're putting your meaning in your life and achieving uh, the benchmark of becoming wealthy and famous, what is that going to do to your, to your being? Well, it doesn't guarantee happiness, that's for sure. I've been very, very lucky to have grown up with Sri Gurudev in my life, even before I was born into this world. He was my family's guru, and my father was a child when he met Sri Gurudev. And in my university and young adult years, I was living in the U.S., in California. And when Sri Gurudev used to come and visit... I used to come to his host house and help with the house because he had so many visitors and a lot of rich and famous people would walk through that door to seek his counsel and they were still seeking. They were still searching. They didn't find their ultimate peace and happiness. So I would say in the pursuit of wealth and fame, it's fleeting and there's no guarantee of happiness. There's no guarantee of this sense of fulfillment. It's something like running after your shadow, as Gurudev always says. You know, if you're running after your shadow, that means your back's towards the light. So turn mm -hmm. around, face the light, and let the shadow follow you. Yeah, and maybe an important component is even just realizing that what I really want is to walk toward the light. Right. Like sometimes it's, it's, it's in the background, right. It's not like mm -hmm. in, um, in right, my attention and my focus that, okay, I want to be happy. I want to feel fulfilled. I want to go into that light. So I, I feel like sometimes we forget that that's, that's the goal <laughs> to feel good. Absolutely. And I mean, this is, this is something that has taken a lot of work. It takes a lot of work to be very true to yourself and very accepting of, well, why am I doing this? And I ask myself that daily, why do I do what I want to do? And it's like, obviously, I want to feel happy and fulfilled. Um, but then it goes through its ebbs and flows because running a charity is no easy feat. And there are days where I'm like, why am I doing this? This is like, I am tired and I am burnt out and I am resentful of the service that I am giving. And that's when it, you come back to yourself and say, well, where are my attachments here? What really am I trying to achieve? And if it's true service, it has to be done in my capacity. And if I can't reach this goal of being number one, being number one is a selfish goal. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's my pursuit of excellence. And that always requires some balancing. I think it's really important to still pursue excellence, but then be very real with yourself as to what your capability and capacity is. So if I'm out there doing a wonderful job in the nonprofit world, 
and then I'm just a miserable person at home, it's not the right balance. And so it just requires a bit of fine tuning. Do you find that to be kind of a, a common trend that life is broken up into different areas and it could seem that someone is is very healthy and doing well, you know, when they're out in public, let's say, and then at home, it's like almost a different, totally different person comes out. Any reflection on kind of this tendency to compartmentalize different aspect of our lives? And is that, is that yoga? Is that like living well, in a kind of authentic way to, you know, be different in different scenarios or maybe it's natural. I don't know. I mean, I think it's mainly just a place of your home, you're safe, you can be vulnerable, you're exhausted mm -hmm. and you let it go. I see that with uh, a lot of kids. Uh, they're great out in public and they save their biggest drama for their parents when they're in a safe space. So I think it's partly that, but I also think that the way we live our world now with social media as an integrated part of the way we live is so much about part of the reason why I do what I do is you see that there is that big disconnect between the life you portray on social media and the real you. And I think that what you're portraying on social media is this almost ideal version of yourself and how wonderful everything is. And when you are in the safety of your own home and the reality of your real life, there's a part of you that feels a little bit hypocritical because you're not living up to what is called a perfect ideal version of what you're sharing with everyone. And you're almost building a house of cards, which feels very hollow. And this, I think, is why this rise of social media and the rise of mental health is it's this trend because it's making that gap very apparent between what is real and what is not real. And it also gives rise to a little bit of narcissism and inflated egos because the truth is nobody really cares what you ate for lunch except yourself. And I, I do this very frequently where I go through my social media almost as a conscious meditation exercise. And as I scroll through my feed and I look at what other people are doing and how other people are portraying their yoga poses or, you know, talking about the issues that they care about. I'm being very aware of what's going on inside of me. Frustration or judgment at some of the yoga images of very scantily clad, skinny, young women portraying yoga in a very sexual way. I watch what's happening. And then reading about issues that I care about, I watch what's happening. And the emotional reactions I get just from a 10-minute social media scroll, <laughs> it's very telling as to how strongly that influences my mind. Mm. And it's important because being able to witness your mind while you go through social media is very, very important to see what emotions come up for you. Mm. And if it really affects you that much where you've lost your balance, sometimes it's good to disconnect. 
Yeah, two things come up um, for me there. One is what we talked about earlier, uh, service. Um, and I think the, the beauty of, of really setting surf, service to be at the highest priority is it kind of eliminates those other things, you know, doesn't it? Like I have work to do in a way, like, you know, there's a purpose to my life. I, I can't get caught in this. Uh, how do I compare to other people? What do I think about them? What do they think about me? Like, there's no time for that, which I love you know, and that, that feels appropriate. Um, and the other thing is, you know, wholeness, you know, just what does it take to feel whole as a human being where you're not swayed by the images you see of other people and, and you're not trying to convince anyone of, of anything. You don't, you don't feel the need to do that. Um, is that so like far out to actually feel whole and, and not be doing that? You know, I hear a lot of people say, you know, I don't care what other people think. And when I hear that, I'm like, well, that's probably true and not true. You know, human beings, a part of our, our very nature is to kind of, um, you know, care what other people think about us. It's a survival mechanism, even I would say, but to really feel whole and to start to move in the direction of, of not being so affected by it. What, what does that take to do that? Hmm. That's a really good question. Uh, it's very difficult. Exactly. As you said, it's very difficult to truly, truly not care what people think, but it's also doable. If you take moments to connect with yourself and create a path for yourself that works for you as an individual. And for me, it's been coming back to my intention of, okay, well, what am I doing? Why am I trying to do this? How can I do this in a way that works within my very, very busy life? Um, and I think if you have a lot of responsibilities on your hands, for example, if you're a parent and you've got your dharma that you must take into account, Sometimes that dictates a lot of your life and it keeps you out of trouble in a way, if that makes sense. Like I've got no time for drama, yeah. but in terms of feeling whole, I think it comes back to taking that time to connect within and finding out what it is that you love. What is it that you're naturally talented at? What is it that you care about? Or what is maybe some injustice that you witness in the world that riles you up and gets you really angry? Those are the things to pay attention to. Because that's where you can channel all your frustration. That's where you can channel the emotions. One of the reasons why I include art as part of the charity work that I do is that art is a very powerful force for expressing emotion and channeling emotion. If you look at some of the best musicians and artists and writers, most of them suffered from some very deep existential crises, um, depression, anxiety. And by being able to channel all of that, they produce the most beautiful works of art. 
if we connect with ourselves and we find the means through yoga or through art or through mindfulness or through the work that we do, no matter how boring a job we might have, we can channel our energy into creation, into creating something meaningful that can be of service. Art is beautiful. It is of service. As I said, my friend, she cuts hair. That is her service. Playing music, whatever it is, it, it, it's there to be shared and to be given. Often we, again, put the condition on ourselves. Well, it's only good enough if I get 10,000 likes or subscribers. But it is good enough, even if five people appreciate it. Yeah, what's, what's the balance there between I'm doing this simply because I enjoy doing it and feel good about it and the result? Uh, the outcome. I, I mean, I personally have found that when I'm more focused on just the process itself, um, what I'm doing, first of all, the quality of it seems to go up as opposed to if I'm focused on the result of it or how good it is, or, you know, then I, I don't think I, I really tap into kind of my fullest potential of, of creating whatever it is I'm trying to create. It's true because your mind is not present. Yeah. Your mind is forward thinking. And if you're thinking of the result, the energy behind it is the, the worry or the fear. Will this be good enough? And that, that interrupts your flow. That takes you out of your zone. Whereas if you are fully present and in the zone, in the process, then obviously the quality is going to be better because the energy just flows. Hmm. Your creativity, yeah, your intuition. So I yeah, I love what you brought up uh, in terms of, of kind of like channeling our energy, our gifts, whatever it is, or finding an outlet um, to express ourselves. It, it seems so necessary. Like I forget that I need to do that a lot of times. Like things will be building up inside, and it's like this energy's got to get out, so I got to do something, right? Um, but sometimes it feels hard to discover like what is the appropriate way to uh, get this energy out. Have you kind of uh, discovered anything um, maybe generally or working with kids to how someone can find, you know, the, the appropriate channel for them to channel their, their energy? It's, mm, that's a good question for somebody to channel their energy somewhere. It, it's, it's important to kind of reflect back. And because I teach a lot of kids, it's kids are very pure in the harmony between their head and their heart and their emotions and their actions. There's very little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Hypocrisy hmm. with what a child thinks, what they feel, what they say, what they do. It's very clear. And so for them, it's simply saying, well, what's what is it going to take for you to feel better? For ki and ki but kids can't sometimes recognize the emotions that they're feeling and the actions that come out as a result. But they naturally look for soothing behaviors and activities. So if a child is stressed out, one of the things that might manifest is hyperactivity, 
jumping, jiggling, running around, kind of agitation causing chaos. So in a yoga class context, if you see that there's a child being disruptive, that's that's some steam that they need to blow. Channel that and make it into a game and then bring the yoga into it. So for some kids, it might be drawing. Some kids might need, you know, mindful coloring, might be listening to music, might be exercise. And sometimes it, it can't always be yoga. And it, you know, yoga is a wonderful way to connect body, mind, and soul. For me, it's a wonderful outlet. But some days I'll need to go for a run. Some days I will need to play around on the piano or write in my journal or do a Zumba class on YouTube. It, it doesn't have to be one way or the other. And especially when you're dealing with heavy emotions. I think more movement base is probably what is better. So for I'll give you an example. When my father passed away almost 14 years ago, wow, uh, I couldn't meditate. I couldn't do integral yoga classes at all. It was too painful to go there. And so I did Ashtanga <laughs> in a hot room. And it was so physically and mentally challenging that it was exactly what I needed because I couldn't think about anything else. And, and I would go through the primary series for beginners in this hot room, come out dripping with sweat and just being like, okay, I did something for my body that got the endorphins to kick in. And that was what worked temporarily. And then obviously, as you're able to process your negative emotions, you find something new, a different outlet. So it really just depends on the person. Find out how to find out what that is. Try new things. Try new things. Especially now, most people are at home, working from home, and there is a YouTube channel for everything under the sun. So you can try <laughs> something new for free and just try it. <laughs> Get out of your comfort zone. Who cares? Yeah. You yeah. Know, I, mean, I think I think you're right, but it's it's yeah. it's it's so hard to do that though sometimes, right? It's like it's called your comfort zone for a reason. <laughs> uh, you know, and you don't know what else yeah. is out there that you could just absolutely fall in, in love with. You know, it's like a big world with so many activities. Absolutely. You know, I think what I do is sometimes I take the lead from my children. Mm. Uh, my daughter uh, in Hong Kong, we've been on, on lockdown on and off since exactly one year ago. And she has resorted, her bedroom has turned into this creative zone. It's almost like Rapunzel in the Disney movie Tangled, where she paints every inch of the tower that she's trapped in. And my daughter has done something like that with her room. <laughs> and I've taken to that being like, oh, that's a really good idea. Maybe I should get to sketching or drawing. <laughs> and so, you know, you can take your cue from, from friends or speak to your partner, your kids, your best friend, your work colleague, and ask what they're doing and see if you'd like to try it. And obviously, if it's not right for you, the minute you try it, you'll know. You either like it or you're like, this isn't for me. Uh, speaking of being a kid, I, I wanted to ask you about 
um, I know that you kind of grew up immersed in, in yoga in a lot of ways, and hopefully that isn't such an uncommon thing, um, now and into the future, but, um, I feel like in some ways it still is now. So like, how do you think having that sort of childhood has affected the type of adult that you've become? I think, hmm. I mean, yoga is a way of living that the principles of yoga are very similar to some of the fundamental, deeper principles of many religions around the world. So I think everybody who grows up with that sort of value-based, values-based upbringing, where your the values come to the forefront and the rules of conduct and respect and kindness come to the forefront, it really impacts you as an individual. Having said that, though, I grew up with my extended family all living in one house. So having almost 100 aunts and uncles and cousins and siblings and parents and grandparents all under one roof, it's, it's grounds for a lot of rubbing and scrubbing. And so, it, you know, on one hand, it teaches you to be very strong, to look up after yourself, but it also teaches you that you're better as a whole. And it's, it's, it was, it's very tricky growing up to say, okay, well, I count as a unique individual, mm-hmm. but I am also just one among the crowd. <laughs> and to, to kind of balance that. And we were all raised kind of in a similar way with very strict rules and a very strong tribal culture. And each of my cousins in their own unique way have had to pursue their own path of uniqueness with their own passions in a way that's been not easy for any single one of them. And some of them have done it to great success. Some of them have done it to smaller success, but every single one of my family members has been able to kind of find what makes them tick in a way. And I think having having those values of family comes first, always look after each other, uh, and some great role models of service, I think it's definitely impacted how I've grown up. Definitely. I've had some great role models in the world of service. Um, Our family is very philanthropic, not just with making donations, but going out and serving. That is one thing that I credit my parents greatly is throughout my childhood, I've always been exposed to going out and giving to those less fortunate, making care packs and going and distributing food packs. Or um, one year, my sister and I, my mom threw our birthday party at the local hospital for children with severe, profound, multiple physical and intellectual disabilities. And instead of having a big party with all our presents, we bought presents and cake and food and had the party in one of the wards of this hospital. And we were able to share in that with a lot of the children there. And that's a memory that stays very deeply in my brain. That that was something that my mom made us do. And 
it just seemed like it was a natural, normal thing. And has that now collided with um, maybe an external world that doesn't value or prioritize that's that sort of thing and how have you been able to sort sort that out being being a child where this was just a common thing this is what we do we give we serve um i don't know exactly how it is in, in hong kong but setting that as a priority isn't um i would say so common in america uh, at the least and and so i don't know just just for you that that kind of interaction that happens with maybe other people who have not set that as a priority. How have you kind of arranged that in your mind? So I think the first and foremost priority for me is to instill that in my own children. So I do. Uh, Secondly, I have avenues that I communicate. And so I now am a trainer for integral yoga and I offer integral yoga teacher trainings every year. And when the topic of karma yoga comes up, then I go to town on that because this is my way of sharing in that knowledge. And part of the teacher training, and this is, okay, before COVID, uh, part of the training would be a karma yoga day where we would go into the community and do some karma yoga. And part of the coursework was for them to do a service learning reflection as and what it means to do some karma yoga. And So that's just one activity. And one of the things that we did every year was to go into the very poor neighborhoods in Hong Kong where people live in cage homes and subdivided flats. And this means a family of four live in a space of about 100 square feet. Or an elderly person literally has a cage home. And when I say a cage home, it's literally a bunk bed that is protected by a wire cage so that their possessions stay inside and nobody can steal them. And that is where they live because they can't afford to live anywhere else. And so we go into these neighborhoods where they have these buildings and we clean the common areas, which are often really, really poorly kept. And, you know, we come in with all our protective equipment and we clean for the whole day and we come out so filthy um most of the time like the clothes that i use they just go straight in the bin i don't even think there's like salvaging to wash them and then i make them go home and write about it and talk about all those experiences and then we come into class the next session And I make everybody read their reflections out and we unpack it because what is the purpose of karma yoga? It's to understand your place in this world. It's to understand your mind. It's to understand your entitlements. It's to understand your ego. It's to understand, first of all, is manual labor for you? No, it's not. But suddenly you have a new appreciation for the people who do manual labor. And then it's like, okay, so how does this work in the context of teaching yoga and how you want to live your life? So that's one avenue that I I use it. And then through the channel of Yama Foundation, we're obviously doing uh, one of our main service areas is yoga for people with disabilities and special needs. And so, you know, as part of the charity work, 
We get people in to write news articles. We do public education events. We advocate. Uh, it's very interesting because one of the most recent things is because of COVID, a few of the event spaces we've worked at, they have had to close down. And now we are struggling to find a space, a studio, be it yoga or dance or wellness studio, that is actually wheelchair accessible in Hong Kong on the island. It is very difficult to find. And yes, I could be very frustrated about it, but now I've taken it upon myself to say, okay, well, this is a story that's here. Did you know Hong Kong does not have? But before I write that article, I'm reaching out to dance studios and wellness spaces and event planning companies and doing a kind of territory-wide search to see what comes up. And then, you know, and then you share in that. Did you know that this is what's out there and this is not what's out there and this is why we exist? So, I mean, if you look at the way I live my life, it's really just a culmination of what I've learned through my experience, what has been instilled in me. And I'm finding a way to share in that in whatever capacity I can. You know, Yama is, it's known, but it's not super well-known as a charity, but it's okay. It's for me, I have enough work. I'm okay. <laughs> I don't need it to be bigger. I've lost the sound. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah. I want to ask you um, if you found the tendency for appreciation to perhaps um, fade or, or gratitude, right? Or how even to, to kind of navigate that feeling maybe when you're, um, when you're having these experiences doing karma yoga, right? Seeing people that are very poor or have a disability, um, right? There's, there's probably a mixture of, uh, man, I should be doing more. And then also a appreciation for um, my life and what I have and the gifts that I've been given. And, and maybe I'm not in that situation. Right. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's the first part is just like kind of navigating that go, go between going back and forth between maybe those two feelings, if it exists. And then also just like this perspective of uh, appreciating a karma yoga experience or appreciating how good it feels to serve. Right. Like I imagine that's what your students say on, on the day after um, you do that and you all come together, how wonderful it was, or it's just wonderful. Maybe is not even the best word, how meaningful but then that starts to fade away, right? You forget about that experience. So what's the lesson there that I need to keep maybe having these experiencing and refreshing my perspective? Sorry, I know that was maybe a lot there. Yeah. I mean, if it's a one-off, then of course it fades. If it's not a one-off and you carry it on in whatever capacity that is. So for some of them, I think that experience was traumatizing, that they would never, ever engage in an activity like that again. However, they think twice about, you know, honking their car at an old person pushing a trolley full of waste that's going to the refuse collection point. 
just different things like that. I don't think something like that ever fades. I think an experience that's that extreme stays with you for a long time. Um, I mean, it's, 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 I guess it's with all the things that you learn, right? You will go to an ashram for a month and have an amazing experience. And if you don't keep up the practices, then obviously it's going to fade over time. So it, I will ask you, well, what, what then can you do? What can you do to keep it up, to keep that momentum going? And it manifests in different ways. I mean, you'll get some people that are like, okay, this doesn't work for me, but I can give in this capacity. And that's what we have as well. Like every Christmas, you know, we have a donation drive to provide school shoe vouchers for the children living in those caged homes and subdivided flats. You know, every year there's a charity that works with them and they ask them, what would you like for Christmas? And thousands of children say, actually, I would like a really nice pair of shoes for school. And there's a funny superstition in Hong Kong about giving a pair of shoes as a gift, which is not great. So we found the loophole and, and this charity was saying like every year kids ask for shoes, but because of this superstition, most of the local donors don't want to give that gift. So we found that little gap and we said, well, okay, I'm not superstitious. So we go to the non-superstitious community and say, you can buy a gift voucher the child will go to take this gift voucher and they can choose their own pair of shoes that they would like. So, you know, it's again, different levels based on what your capacity is, right? If your capacity is really not to go and get your hands dirty, but you have a capacity to write a big fat check, that's not bad because there are people that need that big fat check who don't have that, but they don't mind getting their hands dirty. And that's where you have this kind of interdependence. So there's any sort of way of giving, it just has to work with you. You know, I have some, some friends that I grew up with and they said, I can't do what you do. I'm too squeamish. I really can't do what you do. How can I help? How can I help? And I was like, well, you can throw a fancy lunch with your friends and raise some money. That's what you can do. And I can use that money to do the work. And then it, then you're, it's, it, you know, it's like the cog in the wheel. Every little bit counts. Every little help counts. It doesn't matter how big or small. It's only your ego that puts a label on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What I hear you saying is that the freedom to decide what feels right for you is very important. Mm -hmm. It's not someone else directing me or trying to, to force me to take a certain type of action, that that doesn't work. You know, it has to be something that comes from inside that my heart is telling me makes, makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. One of the things Mataji from Yogaville taught me was when I was actually living and working in New York City at a PR company. And one of the clients I was assigned to was Big Tobacco. But I was in the CSR department, which is corporate social responsibility. <laughs> and obviously, I had this big dilemma in my brain. And I went to the ashram for a weekend to, you know, just decompress, get my connection, meditate, be in the beautiful ashram. 
And I met Mataji and we went for a walk and I shared with her exactly my dilemma. And she said to me, you know, yes, agreed, tobacco is this big industry that is perceived to be doing all these bad things. But if you can use their money, because they have a lot of it, to do something good in this world, I don't see how that is a bad thing. Because it's the service that you're doing. And it really rung true with me. And then I read this book uh, written by an Indian lady. I can't remember her name. And it was titled Mother Teresa CEO. And she was a volunteer and the right-hand person for Mother Teresa for a number of years. And she looked at the way Mother Teresa conducted herself and compared it to qualities of a CEO. And it was the same thing. It, she was focused on the service. And so if somebody wanted to give her a check, she wouldn't be so attached as to where the check came from because it was just a means to the end of the service. And yes, she got criticism. How can you accept money from this company when they're, all they're doing is very evil? It means they can influence you. But she never saw it like that. And I think it really opened my eyes to how clear I need to be in my lines when I run a charity, saying, yes, I will accept your money, but I will not be swayed by it because the work that we're doing is the work that we're doing. And that's not going to affect the service. I so appreciate that, you know, clear, clear lines, um, knowing where our edges are and, and then being okay with it. Um, yeah. I think that's great. Oh, I had to get coaching to learn about boundaries. <laughs> we all easy. get coaching. Yeah. I have a bleeding heart. And exactly how you said, when you're in a karma yoga situation, you're like, I need to do more. I need to do more. I need to do more. And I ended up sick and depressed because I was so empty by the end of it. Mm. And I needed to take care. And my health declined and I gained a bunch of weight. And something needed to change. And so I sought help with a life coach. And the life coach helped me find what are the boundaries that work for myself. And now I have post-its up in all corners of my house and my office to remember it's just your capacity. You don't have to save the world. Just the people in front of you are who you have to serve. That's it. Nothing more, nothing less. The world is too big and there's loads of people working to the same ends. Yeah. You know, I, I think that there might really be a shift when it becomes a more uh, common perspective that self-care, that by really taking care of the self, that's how I can do the most good um, for other people. But like, that not just like, I feel like that gets like, um, I don't know, just like a fuzzy, fuzzy notion saying that people throw around instead of like this grounded reality of just how nature works, right? Like the tree can't bear fruit if it's not a healthy tree, it's not going to grow any, any fruit and that it's just the natural outcome. Like if I am healthy, I'm just going to do, it's just going to have a ripple effect 
and I'm just going to do good for uh, those those around me. And then I think um, you know the other the other aspect too is is that if I am doing good for other people, if I am serving, that becomes another form of self care as well. So it's like everything is self care, even when I'm um, you know taking care helping someone else out, you know, it's not this kind of this draining where I'm draining myself of energy. It's the exact opposite. Actually, I'm building my energy up. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this is where self-care is selfless. I mean, I think this, and this is a huge question that comes up with a lot of more intermediate to advanced yoga students, where they look at the concept of karma yoga and they compare it to uh, Sri Patanjali's thoughts of vrittis that are painful versus painless, as Sri Gurudev says, selfish versus selfless. But self-care is not selfish, right? It's not. In the beginning, it has to be because you're just finding your feet. You don't have the physical or the spiritual muscles to navigate your life. So in a way, it's almost like you, you do need to retreat and learn and train in that and somewhat disconnect yourself from the outside world. So yes, going to an ashram is so important. I did my teacher training at Yogaville in 2002. And then early 2003, I went straight to South India to the Integral Yoga Center in Coimbatore. And from 2003 to 2004, I was back and forth from that center with Swami Divyananda, who was, uh, during that time, I have to say, Swami Dayananda, and Swami Divyananda really held me steady during those times. And you come out of it almost ready to come back and, okay, now how do I integrate this into my life? Now, I did it in that way where it seemed like I was running away from my life. But for me, I needed to do it that way. The way I do the teacher training is never an intensive. It's actually spread out over six months to one year where we have an intense weekend. And then it's like, okay, now go try this in your real life and come back and report. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a little slower and more manageable. But where I was in my life, I wasn't, I didn't have, I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. I was on a sabbatical from my work. It was my kind of year gap year to kind of live life and explore. So I was able to disconnect and go find it, but not everybody has that luxury. Uh, so you do need to a little bit disconnect, be selfish, figure out what it is you're searching for and find some sort of internal connection with yourself. You don't have to have a purpose. You don't need to say, Oh, what is my purpose in life? What am I supposed to be doing? No, you just need a general idea of where, where would I like to head? What would I like to kind of move forwards with? And take one step in that direction. That's it. It doesn't need to be more dramatic or grand than that. Mm. And, you know, I don't look at the work that I do as grand or anything big or fancy. It's just, now what? Almost 20 <laughs> years of small actions. Right. I graduated my TT in 2002 and I never look back. It's just 20 years of small actions. That's it. 20 years of now what? <laughs> exactly. I don't have it all figured out, 
But do I feel at peace with myself? Yes. Am I grateful every day? Yes. Does it mean I don't face struggles? Absolutely not. That's life. Hersha, thank you so much. I uh, really enjoyed this time immensely. Um, if people would like to uh, connect with you or learn more about your work, what's the best way for them to do that? So uh, my website, hershayoga.com, uh, will connect you directly to me, uh, my Instagram, or please look at the work of Yama Foundation. Uh, and if that you know, is something that you're drawn to supporting, please support it. Uh, we're going through a really tough time right now because a lot of the donors are shifting funding to medical supplies and food and essential items. However, we see that many of our beneficiaries, their physical and mental health are deteriorating and they need some form of connection. And so we're really trying and struggling to keep our communities connected. So if that is something that you'd like to help out, please do. Um, and, you know, email me directly. I'd love to hear from anyone. Thanks so much again, Hersha. Thank you, Avi. This has been absolutely amazing. Let's close with the sound of one ohm. Okay. Oh. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this content and think others might as well, please feel free to share and subscribe.